This week on the show, we're kicking off the new year with a little entrepreneurial inspiration, courtesy of the brilliant John Hitchcock, chairman and founder of U-Group, and the driving force behind the £1.3 billion regeneration of Olympia here in London, amongst a host of other celebrated projects. John has more than four decades of experience shaping and reshaping neighbourhoods and delivering a groundbreaking vision for the city. He's here to talk about his life and times as one of the most influential and well-respected entrepreneurs and pioneers in the global property industry. This is The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. So we do start the show and indeed our entrepreneurs programming for 2023 by sitting down with the founder of U-Group, John Hitchcock. John, a very warm welcome to Monocle. Welcome back, I should say, as I know you know lots of the crew here going back a few years or so. Plenty of questions about your storied career to come. But let's start by talking about Olympia London, an equally storied venue, uh, certainly for Londoners like myself. But tell us a bit about the Regeneration Project and U-Group's work on it. We are very lucky to inherit the name Olympia. In a way, it's not even really inheriting a name. We are custodians of this beautiful collection of buildings that has just grown over the last 130 years from 1886, where I'm guessing somebody like me turned up (laughs) and said, what can we do to exhibit all that's good and great? I would say about the UK, and it was probably a little bit broader in 1886, and developed the first building, which is this sort of stunning, almost railway station-like group of buildings using the sort of pioneers of technology at that time with steel and glass to create this beautiful dome building and and then open it with this beautiful VIP building next door, which is called Pillar Hall, and start the world of exhibiting. Then in 1925 or thereabouts, there was an extension built to it, which was a similar one. I imagine another similar chap like me turned up and goes... Here we go. We've got a beautiful site here. Well, let's make this bigger. And then somebody again did the same in the 1940s with an Art Deco building and build another beautiful extension. And here we are really taking the baton and moving the whole project forward. What we inherited here was, as I say, this beautiful collection of buildings where we could go to the all of the community, the local community, the local government, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and we could say, let's just mow them all down and build a block of flats. What we did was we went there and we said what we want to do is embrace the exhibition, events, culture, design and really bring this forward because what we have here is an extraordinary location. We're at the end of Kensington High Street. We're 25 minutes away from the airport. We're 25 minutes away from the West End and we have 200 shows a year from the Horse of the Year through to the Ideal Home Exhibition, a lot of different events. We did 63 days of public consultation in this beautiful hall called Pillar Hall. And we went and we said, we're going to embrace this and we're going to build and we're going to really rebuild Olympia and polish her. To a certain extent, she was the poor cousin of Earl's Court for many years. And no one quite knows why, because in actual fact, much prettier building, etc., etc. Although Earl's Court was a lot bigger and the big shows, you know, went there. And with Earl's Court gone, we're left with really three big events and exhibition venues in the UK, one being NEC, the other being XL, and the third being us. Our real plus points are location, quality of buildings, uniqueness, and things like the Horse of the Year, things like the Book Fair. We're the sort of go-to stable for those sorts of shows which cross between consumer and, in some cases, business. 
Yeah, and there's such a sort of romance about Olympia. I think frequent visitors will understand why you talk about in this almost reverential tone about that amazing history, the design. It's still, it's got the best sort of interior climate control of any, practically any building I own. It's never too hot. It's never too cold. And it comes back to this idea. I think Victorians knew a thing or two about Absolutely. how to... Absolutely. No, they did. I mean, the building was built incredibly quickly and its level of deterioration is actually relatively small. And so we've started down the process. We we did these 63 days of public consultation with everyone from the next door neighbour, with the fox in the garden through to the Prime Minister. And our pitch was, let's embrace this. Let's do what we can to really support these 130,000 businesses. And the output of that was theatres, music venues, restaurants, hotels. And we're very lucky now, and particularly through the, the storm that we've all been in. We've come out with some first-class operators, AEG, which runs the O2 and is one of the biggest players in the field of entertainment, is building a 4,000-capacity music venue on site with us so you'll have a sort of big artist in residence for four or five days or a week there that will hopefully complement the shows that will be going on we then built the first theatre in London for the last 60 or 70 years as we can see it 1600 seater theatre along with a number of other big tents that are coming through now so I suppose so we're on site and it's on its way. It's pretty exciting. And we'll come back to a little more of the detail. But I wanted, there's a few threads from some of the things you've mentioned there, yeah. John, already, which actually I think in terms of this chat, which I, you know, I want to kind of get under the hood a little bit of John Hitchcock as well oh, as right, the right, businesses right. that you have presided and continue to preside over. And some of the threads I think that are interesting to sort of pull out, which are really interesting, is that just that focus, an obsessive focus on design, whether that's the storied history of specific buildings, but just making that something of a prerequisite for any project there has to be this focus recognition of fascination with design i know that's obviously something that's been important with all those people you've collaborated Mm. with the great philip stark Mm. and so on do you think that is i don't know did you arrive at a point where you came to appreciate design it had to inform the work you wanted to do or was it through doing some projects maybe where there were issues or disagreements around the design ethos and you were like, I can't work like this. How did you sort of develop that sort of I think, sensibility? I, think, I mean, I, I'm sure this isn't the most sexy answer, but I think there were two things. I think I, I, I wanted to become an entrepreneur. I'm a Steiner kid. I went to Rudolf Steiner school where not many people want to be businessmen. And so in a way, I probably, if I had, if I'd been to a normal school, I probably would have been an accountant or a lawyer or something, something along those lines. But Having had this deep immersion in creativity, arts and music through being at a Steiner school, that overlaid with the desire to become an entrepreneur. My father was an architect, and so I was very frequently seeing a lot of design, but you know, his drawing board was in the middle of the house. And it was back in the day where it was a drawing board and he was drawing it. So I was deeply imbibed and immersed in design. Every house that we, I think, I don't know how many houses we were in when I was a kid, but it's in, you know, it's probably close to double digits. And we would move into a two up, two down, and we'd leave it as a five bedroom house because there were five kids. And the day that we saw it finished was the day that we moved out. And then we moved on to the next one. So design, construction, and building was my, you know, it was, it was like Lego. They were like building blocks. I mean, that's what playtime and fun time was. And then the other flip side of this was that my mother wanted me to be a musician. So I was marched off to learn the violin, the piano, the recorder, the clarinet. And I was obviously useless at all of these. 
So my mother then sort of started focusing more on, well, she, well, two things happened. She focused more on my younger sister, who did become a performing violinist and an architect, which is quite ironic. Now, I got relegated to being a conductor, which back in those days was a little bit like being a DJ. But of course, a conductor now is like a hero and a DJ is a hero now. And so, you know, and my job today is not much different from being a conductor. I think the combination of those two things at home, wanting to be an entrepreneur, and you sort of throw them all in a pot and shake it all up and you got me. I look at my father obsessing with why we couldn't harness wave power back in the winter of discontent with Arthur Scargill because we didn't have any electricity and we were busy putting windmills up and we were looking at how you could charge a battery off them and those sorts of things. And that's what I do now. So I've lived a very practical life in the amalgamation of all of that lot. And everything I do, I do for fun, I do for pleasure, and I do with an absolute innate desire to leave the planet in a better place than when we started. I've found myself over the years cracking that joke. What's the difference between a doctor and an architect? The difference is a doctor can bury his mistakes, you know, whereas these buildings, and that's why even you come back around to Olympia and you talk about that sense of being the custodian. I mean, the power of the buildings itself, you just feel it. Yeah, you know, and anyone who's, anyone who's visited, I think, will know exactly what you're, what you're talking about. I find that really interesting, this idea of the you're talking about a pragmatism though and an intentionality about the decisions you've made the projects that you've taken on does there always have to be because this was another thing that i wanted to pick up on was this idea you talked about place making there's something that is very pragmatic it strikes me you're not interested in doing vanity projects or stuff that's going to win column inches it's about something that is sustainable by which i don't mean there's a new kind of green tinge sustainability yeah. although that helps and yeah. we can come on to your yeah. the energy projects and all the rest of it but being really sustainable having an enduring quality when did you realize that maybe set you apart from other people who were doing what you were doing who were successful in property development who maybe just didn't have that same kind of deep interest in making places that were for people and that had culture mm. and that had the right mix did you feel that that approach you've described its origins but did you feel that set you at odds with other people who were in the same kind of racket that you were in i mean it's it's quite interesting because you know sometimes you're supposed to be trying to be like everybody as much as possible and obviously i had a slightly unique entrance point to this theater and i noticed that you know i remember in the 80s, I was the guy who turned up on the bicycle to the site and everyone else turned up in Porsches and GTIs and all this sort of thing. And I remember trying to be more of the part and, you know, wanting to turn up. And, but it's still enjoying the cycle there like I have done today. So when you talk about pragmatism and these sorts of things, I mean, I look at it from a very simplistic need approach. If we talk about gentrification, regeneration and all of this sorts of work, which has been, I think, the sort of backbone of my career over the last 40 years if it's been Clark and well where we were the first there or Bankside where we were deeply involved in the globe we were deeply involved in the tape going there and deeply involved in the combination of bringing forward all of these various pieces of fabric of building fabric which helps build heart in a community and those desires are just internal I'm going in my simplistic way and there's slightly I think because I'm a sort of dyslexic, and you become quite practical. You just go, what would I like? What would I like? If I'm going to live in an apartment on, let's take Bankside, let's say if I'm going to live in an apartment at the top of Bankside, what would I like downstairs? 
I'd love to have a theatre celebrating Shakespeare. I'd love to have a Tate Gallery that changes it to... And, and if I live at Olympia, what would I love to have? What would I love to go... If I'm going to a show at Olympia, which is what's happened to me. I mean, we based us... And I, I kind of... It's a little bit like method acting, this. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 last year, and I hate it, I've, I've just been to the office, which is around the corner from here, for the third time this year, because I've been to Olympia or I go to the lake. So I just live on site in order to feel that need. Does mm. that make sense? It makes perfect sense. But one thing that you're doing, you're guilty, John, something that I know lots of the good entrepreneurs that I get to meet on this are guilty of, which is making something very complex and hard to do sound a, easy, and oh, yeah. B, like, oh, well, of course, naturally, I just did this because it presented itself as the right. And there's often this extraordinary chemistry that goes into that moment of uh, of clarity. I'm 61. <laughs> you know, you know there's a, this journey started off at 17. Here's a question for you then. Do you recognize the instincts, and you talked about this sort of entrepreneurial vision you had even as a, what, a teenager. Do you still recognize those instincts? I mean, are there things where you think, Actually, I I subsequently I understand a bit better. I could have done this differently, or do you kind of back seventeen, eighteen year old John still now to because he was doing things by gut and by instinct and by inclination rather than because there was a received wisdom. Yeah, I think every experience is a learning experience, and then as you get older through the cycles, you get that inferred wisdom, which is somehow uh, you know. It's not actually necessarily recalling every single event, but it's an amalgamation of those experiences. And then uh, that guttural approach to how can I improve? How can I change? For sure, you refine your approach. When you're younger, you, you, know, you have ideals, but it's very much more difficult to enact them because you need to put food on the table needs must to a certain extent whereas when you're older you can afford a bit more integrity yeah. you know and uh, and I'm not I'm not you know I'm not trying not to be cynical there but you know that is oh, I don't think again I don't case. think it's cynical I think it's more pragmatism mm. to that point though John what about once you get to a certain kind of scale you get to maybe move the needle on things in a way that would be pure idealism even yeah. for a successful yeah. entrepreneur in their early 20s yeah. or early 30s once you enjoy that kind of success and you have a bit more of that leverage to bring to bear on a situation, it strikes me that you still wear that quite lightly. You know, you're talking about shaping or reshaping neighbourhoods in London, some of the names you've reeled off. You've been quite involved, really, at that very formative stage. I guess what does the excitement about being involved there and getting to do something trump any reservation about, oh, well, you know, what if this goes oh, wrong? You've hit the nail on the head. What Absolutely, what, 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 of course. That? I mean, you know, like? I wake up, you know, the cold sweats in the middle of the night. Uh, yeah. Still I mean, now, the, though? Still now? No, I wake up at four o'clock in the morning, pretty much every morning. That's my thinking time. And that you could call that worry. You could call that programming. What I will do is I will have to put the entire world to rights on pretty much everything that I'm doing before I can go to sleep. I had a really good day yesterday, and so most of the processing that I did at four o'clock this morning actually was quite pleasurable. And just accepting that as being, I mean, that, you know, this word entrepreneur has been blown up and it's become everyone's aspiration today. It's a pretty scary place. And the fear, translating the fear into motivation is the creative task and the creative moment. There are deeply concerning moments. I would say all the way through my 20s, and probably all the way through my 30s, you know, I thought the sky was going to fall on my head at the end of the day. And that sensation doesn't go away. 
what you need to do during that period of time is manage that because you are going to survive. There's moments in entrepreneurialism, shall we call it, or there's moments in creativity, or there's moments in your field of professionalism or expertise. And I've been playing this tune, this symphony, for 40 years now. And I have to convince myself this. And Olympia, in a way, is quite a, it's, it's a piece of placemaking. Yeah, we've done, I don't know the number, but it's high double digits of very substantial projects all over the world. So I've been involved in placemaking, probably as much as anyone, if not more than anyone. And then I had this sort of pool of resources, which we've talked about already, which is, what would I like? And I don't know whether, because I'm in this very fortunate position for having done this for 40 years, and then saying, what would I like? And then going out and talking to AG and all of these people and saying, can you please come here and let's put all this together and share the dream? Whether or not that's a sort of leadership, i.e. you're leading people to that particular well, or because it's a really good idea and <laughs> that's the opportunity. As I said at the early stage, you know, the guy he'd thought of Olympia obviously had similar thoughts to me. So that gives you a bit of confidence. I just want to touch on a couple of other projects you've already spoken so interestingly about the plans for Olympia. But of course, there are hallmarks from you projects from the start of the you group, really, Lakes by You. John, so many of these things are very innovative. Just tell us a little bit, though, about the threads that, that do run through all of the projects. I know we've already spoken about yeah, a deep, I mean, a deep interest in design, but tell us how you rationalise, because they seem, it seems like such a wide range of projects, but they're all identifiably I guess, you. Yeah, I guess that the, I mean, they're all back, I'm back to that need. This is the point about managing creativity, you know, because there's sparks of thought. The Lakes was a, a moment in time, and, and my task is to find those moments in time, some of which are absolute rubbish, of which you never hear about, but they're complete failures to me, and of which there are a lot of those, probably more than there were successes, but the successes happen to be bigger. But the Lakes was one where I really wanted my children to be brought up in the country, but I had a job in town. I remember walking through Regent's Park on a Sunday morning with a pushchair and a crying child, and I was walking along and I could see another dad with exactly the same scenario as me. And I thought, I tell you what, how about we build a place out in the country where we could all go. It would be a beautiful piece of countryside. You could shut your front door. You could open your curtains and you could write your symphony, your book, your, your set of accounts, whatever you had to do in a wonderful environment. Your kids could run out the door and they would play with like-minded kids. Your fire would be lit when you arrived there because you were so short of time because of your job in London and your kids would have activities to do which would give them a huge injection of countryside over the weekend and then they could go back to their urban school from Monday to Friday. And that was the spawn of the idea of the lakes and then and then I managed to find this um, a call actually. It was the same month that we started you in, in, in March 1999. And I got a call from this chap saying, I found this site. It's nearly a thousand acres in the Cotswolds. It's a gravel pit. And we think we can build 11 lakes and 160 homes around these gravel pits. And I went, I'm too busy. And then the following weekend, somebody invited me down literally to stay with them around the corner. And I went there and I looked at this site. And this site was exactly the idea of what I've actually been looking for the previous three or four years. 
And that was the lakes. That was 1999. By 2006, we got planning and we built the first few houses. And now that first project is virtually finished. There's 160, 170 homes where um, people, second homes, and and it's people from West London getting in their cars on a Friday night, taking their young children down, letting their kids out. Their kids, it's a completely safe and secure environment, and they're learning. You know, I was down this last weekend, they're doing bushcraft down the river, and they're learning about minnows, and they're learning about fishing, and they're learning about sailing, and they're, they're having a really pleasant sort of educational environment and we've got a little farm there it's, it's, it's fun it sounds lovely just briefly John, i've got to touch on some of the challenges of the last couple of years during periods of volatility like this do you just double down and underscore the commitment to the values that you've talked so eloquently about or or, or is it necessary always to to pivot to demonstrate a degree of flexibility how, how have you Almost personally, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think the four o'clock processes on double time now. The volume of computations that you're having to make on a daily basis goes up significantly. There's elements of it that are quite soul destroying, and there's elements of it that are quite depressing, and there's elements of it that are extremely challenging because, of course, you have you know these ideas that you're simply executing in your world in the hope that other people will like them, and they're coming in, and that's making the business cycle flow. And then you have you know I mean we're all aware that. In this interest rate cycle, the interest rates are just about to go from one to six. That's six times what they were or whatever the, the number ends up being. So, I mean, that, that's a pretty major cock up by politicians, but also the major banks all over the world. Because, you know, I mean, I didn't do that much studying. But what I did do is I studied that if you print money, you get inflation. And if you get it to stop inflation, you need to rise interest rates. So all of that is a fairly logical piece, which seemed to have been overlooked by short term politics. We have to put that into our considerations and our thoughts when doing all that we're doing. There are two underlying aspects of everything that exist that you can overlay that from our side. First of all, our projects are incredibly long term. We're looking at Olympia 2033 at the moment. This piece of the cycle will be going through it. And the same with the lakes. These are very large projects. And the same with, I'm going out to Vietnam for a project we've got out there, which is it's a £600 million project. These are things that, that have very much life as their own. And the other part about it is that the projects that we do are really lifestyle projects. They're about things that people need and desire and would love. And that puts them in varying different brackets of affordability. But if you have two kids age three to five, and you want somewhere in the country for them to go to where you can rest and recuperate and spend family time, you can't wait for the end of the financial cycle. And we found at the Lakes, for example, we went through 2006, 2007, and our sales continued because this was products that we developed, are products that are ones that people want. And the ebbs and flows of the economic cycles are going to exist. But if you have enough people that are interested in your offering then they will come and I would say people will be doing shows to exhibit their products at Olympia in the way that they've been doing it for the last 150 years they probably will for the next couple of years as well and probably longer that doesn't say that we mustn't be adjusting and adapting to technology and all of those things but we have to take them into account I mean, for me at the moment, I'm saying to our, you know, we've got various teams of various businesses and I'm saying, look, 
we are in a situation at the moment where we are desperately short of national power. I have been in the business for the last 10 or 15 years of building wind turbines and solar farms and more recently battery storage facilities. And I love that because I also lay a lot of concrete, which I feel quite guilty about. And one offsets the other. But more, it was a great fascination. I mean, you know, this world travels around at whatever it does, 24,000 miles an hour. If you stick a windmill up in the air and you plug it into a power plant, you would have thought you're going to get some electricity out of it. I mean, that's my simplistic logic. Stick hundreds of windmills up there and you probably don't need to dig. You know, you don't need... Originally, for me, it, this whole thought process came around the winter of discontent where I was couldn't age whatever I was, 78, so I was aged 14, 15. I couldn't understand why people were going on strike because they wanted to go down and work in a mine and get asbestosis and all sorts of other lung-based diseases when you could, you had a possibility of wind power or solar renewable power that could do it all. You know, I wasn't aware of work ethics and <laughs> cultural issues and all those sorts of things at that age. But I'm still simply doing that, and we've now got an opportunity. We have enough natural resources in the UK and every other country around the world to power this planet from renewables. And there are some more pressing reasons for that now that we've discovered, like climate change, etc. And I'm saying that to the guys, listen, residential market might be a bit wobbly for the next couple of years. Let's go and do some more of that. Well, more power to you on that front. So many of your stories you referred, I think, explicitly or implicitly to yourself as kind of a little bit the composer you said of this big piece and the conductor there's this sort of musical metaphors which i think very elegantly weave their way through the story if we follow that to a slightly clunky conclusion how does the john hitchcock story continue then from here is there a I mean, how do i write the requiem well no yeah well, i was going to say <laughs> is there an unfinished symphony still broiling away in your head or a for, for, to bring in the literature a magnum say, opus what have you what have i you got always left? used to say it was the next but i don't know i don't know i mean you know, I just hit that 60 thing where, you know, historically, that's where you retire. I had a big naval staring year where, and I really focused on health, really focused on longevity, really focused on all those things, and then thought, well, I'm going to calm down a bit. And then actually having done all that focusing on health, and you get younger when you start getting healthy, I'm actually thinking more of the same. And we don't know what's going to come around the corner. I mean, it would be strange, I guess, if I wasn't involved in some kind of urban regeneration projects. And that would be a skill, a piece of service that I could give to society and, and this planet. And that's something that I guess if I'd been playing the violin all day and every day for the last 45 years, I might be asked to come and play some violin somewhere. But I suspect that with a history of having worked on so much that I have, that I'll be doing more of the same. And I love it. I'm, I absolutely love it. I mean, there's no distinction for me between work and play. It's all one. Well, I think, I tell you, London as a landscape would be a lot poorer. So let's hope you don't oh, jack it all in any time soon, much. John. Um, look, I could talk to you all day, but there we'll leave it for now. Who knows? Maybe we can do a, a part two at some point very soon. But John Hitchcock, it's been an absolute delight. Thanks for coming to chat Thank to you us. very much indeed. Thank you. That was the great John Hitchcock. And you can learn more about U Group and all the different work that John has done and is doing. Head to u.com now and you can learn more about the Olympia development at olympia.co.uk. That's it for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back at the same time next week. Do keep an ear out for Eureka, coming your way every Friday. The Entrepreneurs is produced by Laura Kramer, with mixing and editing by Jack Dewars. My thanks to them. 
as ever. And thanks once again to John and all the U Group team. You can listen again and find out more about The Entrepreneurs at monocle.com or follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform. If you want to get in touch, you can contact the team here. Email laura at lrk at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs.